You remember last time I was up here talking about Amos, I told you that Amos was a very strong man. And the reason that he needed that strength was because he had messages like this one. He had to say this to a bunch of other people who had to hear it and had to understand what God was saying to them. And, well, people don't react well to negative passages. So I have to admit something here, and I, I, I'm happy that you guys are with me. You, this is a safe space, I'm hoping. You know, you nobody's going to hate on me. I was mad at Amos when I first read this section. I got to admit, I... I felt something while I was reading this passage. And I, I don't know if you know me very well. One of the things that, well, okay. The office, they have nicknames for everybody. The one that they tend to call me most often, I, I, I often get referred to as the, the most important character in all of sitcom history, Dr. Sheldon Cooper. Because I honestly have a little trouble sometimes with my own emotions. I'm uncomfortable with them. I, I don't like them. And it weirds me out when I have a strong, visceral, emotional reaction to something. And so I got to figure it out. I got to know why my heart did this. Why am I so negative towards Amos? I was angry at him. And then, and then as I went through it, I was hurt. And, and I wanted more than anything to say, you know what, Pastor Steve, I think we should do another couple of books. You know, I'll, I'll do another book so that we don't have to go through Amos. Because it's hard. And I think there's a very simple reason for it. An answer that we actually received from the text today. But I'll try to put it in some modern parlance so we can kind of grasp how this works. Um, Postmodern philosophy will call what I'm going to be referring to as meta-narratives. Now, this is different than what we mean when we say that the whole Bible is a single meta-narrative, an overarching story. You see, what the postmoderns recognized and what I think they're right about is that we as humans make up stories to make us feel better about ourselves. We make up stories that make it so that we will accept the, the world that we have around us and so that we can maintain our understanding. And these stories are often used by, and big words that postmoderns love, hegemonic power to overrule other people and to make sure that their story beats other people's stories. And now the, the postmoderns are wrong because they think that all of these narratives are just, there's, there's only these meta-narratives. But the thing is, every time you find your meta-narrative questioned, you're going to have a strong visceral response from who you are, from the depth of your being, because what's being questioned here is not merely the surface things of what you believe. It's the undergirding of what you believe, the things that move you, the things that you think are completely unable to be questioned, the things that lead to outrage. We know a lot about outrage, don't we, in the 21st century? We've all read Facebook. We know outrage. 
And so the postmoderns will say that everything is just these stories. And this is the problem that we find when we run into prophets. Because do you know what a prophet's job is? A prophet brings, I guess I'll call it a counter meta narrative. Or I'll, I'll use the word that we should use. They bring the truth. And you see the thing, the interesting thing about the truth, the truth that God gives, no false meta-narratives stand before it. There is no way for these false ideas and these false situations that we have to stand before God because the truth wins. God always wins. The truth always wins. And that's what Amos is bringing. A situation that's always going to be difficult. Uh, poor guy, I gotta say. Because what we see here in Amos chapter 1 and chapter 2 is God, through his prophet Amos, systematically and exhaustively going through all of the nations surrounding Israel. Now, Amos is preaching to the people of Israel. He's from Tekoa. He was moved by God, and God called him to preach to the people of Israel. And so, right now, this oracle that we're seeing here at the beginning of Amos is God going through all of the sins of all of the peoples in the region around Israel. And, and for the first little bit, I'm sure Israel is really happy about this because it's red meat. It's the reaffirming of all of the problems that these other nations have. He goes against Edom and he goes against Moab. He shafts the Ammonites and he shafts the people of Tyre. All of the people. And even he even deals with the people that Amos is from Tekoa, which is in Judah. For his own people, he says something negative about them too. And so the people of Israel are going, yeah, yeah, awesome, awesome. Make him, make that man Republican candidate, man. Make him the conservative candidate for the, for the next election. But he doesn't stop. He continues. And in fact, gives the most exhaustive retribution to the people of Israel. You see, Amos 1 and 2 has a very interesting structure. It's, it's basically saying, yeah, this guy is bad, and this guy is bad, and this guy is bad, and they're bad because of this reason, and this reason, and this reason, and this reason, and I am totally going to bring judgment against them. And, and our natural reaction, if we're looking at other people, is to go, yeah, that's awesome, that's great. Yes, the Lord God is just and righteous. He will bring opposition to the things that we find unjust. And then, as prophets do all the time in Scripture, and then he says, you're the man. You're also guilty. You do this too. Shameless plug for my Bible study on Sunday nights. We've been going through Romans. I don't know if you know this, but the, this is also the situation in Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. Romans chapter 1, God... Uh, Paul goes through for the, uh, 
the wrath of God is revealed against all manner of unrighteousness. And then he goes into a full list of all the manners of unrighteousness that the people around them were facing. And then Paul does exactly what Amos did here. And he starts chapter 2 with, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Amos is, is a foretaste, a forebear of what Paul is doing here. He has a slightly different way of doing it, but it is the same project. Brothers and sisters, we all stand equal before God. And I'm not saying this just to the people who know Jesus here in this congregation or online. I mean everybody. We all stand equal before God. We are unrighteous and we deserve God's punishment. Amos does it in a very simple way. I don't know if you noticed the repeated phrase, for three transgressions and for four. In each case, that's him saying that there are multiple ways in which people have failed God. They have failed to be moral. They have failed to be good and profitable and kind to those around them. It's to accent that it's not merely that they did it three times and stopped. They did it three times and then if that wasn't enough, they kept going on to four. The first group, each section, has one to two actual transgressions listed. Uh, and each of them are rivals of Israel, op opponents to Israel. Each of them are rivals, except for the fact that when it gets to Israel... It's going to list all of them sins of Israel, point by point, line by line. And when it comes to the evils done, it doesn't matter who the victim is. You'll notice that Tyre is punished for betraying Edom, and Edom is punished for its lack against, of forgiveness against Tyre. The Ammonites are punished for their opposition to all of these groups that, well, Amos recognizes are evil. And the reason is pretty simple. There's not merely act, evil actions in each of these cases. There's a whole system of evil in existence in each case, including the case of Israel. It's not that they merely do bad stuff. It's that they want to do bad stuff. It's like, it's like the way that we have when we face the world as it is and we imagine that we're righteous and then we face the rest of the world, and we think we're completely justified in all the things we do. We minimize our own sin and we maximize the sin of others. And that's what's happening in each of these cases. For three transgressions and for four, I will not withhold the punishment. There's a lot of different surface types of sin here. There's self-righteousness. Many of these groups feel that they're justified in doing evil things to one another. You know how it is, don't you? I mean, it's probably past your lips. You've had an you're having an argument with someone you care about. They've said, they've said or done something that you can't 
that, that, that can't possibly be uh, forgiven and then and you, you, you recognize some of the problems. But, and you recognize suddenly you did something wrong. But you'll say this. I would never have done that if you hadn't done this. And of course, because you did this thing over here and I wouldn't have done this a bad thing over here unless you had done this thing, then of course my evil is acceptable. And your evil is not. The problem, of course, comes in the fact that we don't actually just have problems one with another. We also have problems in the world generally and with God. (laughs) Because God rules all things. God is good. And God desires that goodness would rain down everywhere. And yet, we think we're righteous. And these people were believing that they were were righteous. They believed that in themselves they were righteous, and because they themselves were righteous, any evil that they did, well, maybe not acceptable, it was at least justified. And Amos' message is, no, no, it's not. Look at Tyre. Tyre ignores a covenant of brotherhood with Edom. Edom refuses to pity their victims and holds on to his onto their wrath. In a really interesting extreme version, Moab burned to lime the king of Edom. By the way, just to, just to give you an idea here, in, in ancient Near Eastern religion, as far as we can tell, there was a belief that if you had your body uh, continue, in the next world, the gods could raise your body and you could again live in the next world. And the reason that you would burn somebody to dust is because you really, really hate them and you never want them to actually be able to come back. So the people of Moab really hated the people of Edom and really hated the king of Edom. And so when they killed him, they not only killed him, they made sure that they got rid of him completely. It's kind of similar to, I don't know if you've ever read the old story about uh, John Wycliffe, the Bible translator. He translated the Bible from from uh, other languages into English. And then a few years later, after, uh, after he had died and you know people had come onto the scene afterwards, the Church of Rome decided that he was a heretic. And so not only just saying that his books had to be burned, they went back, found his body, and burned his bones too. Just so that they could just you know totally repudiate him. And that's kind of the situation you have here with the peoples around Israel. They believe, they're angry, they're, 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 and they believe they're justified in the wrong things they're doing. And based on the fact that God, in some cases, is angry with these people for doing those things too, they might be right. Those other people did do horrible things to them. They have reason to be, in some reasons, to be angry. But the problem was that they had become self-righteous. They believed that they were righteous and acceptable in doing evil to others. Luckily, we have no idea how that feels like, do we? We would never be like that. I, and uh, that's sarcasm because to be, in, in it, to be honest, we do that all the time. We do it in big ways and we do it in small ways. I read uh, a blog post this week, um, actually a very brilliant one by a friend of a friend, where she talked about how even in reading the book of Genesis, she noticed that she was reading about Eve and she felt herself becoming self-righteous about Eve. I mean, after all, Eve 
plunged humanity into sin and to separation from God. And, you know, why couldn't Eve just have, like, not eaten that stupid fruit? But then she began to realize that she was lacking compassion because she believed that she's more righteous than Eve. And that lack of compassion had caused her to not see the ways in which she was similar to Eve. That lack of compassion meant that she misunderstood God's goodness to Eve immediately afterwards in promising Christ there. There's a minor way we would, our self-righteousness can cause problems, but there's major ways too. An, an acquaintance of mine who's, uh, we disagree vehemently on a lot of topics, but he's begun to notice something about uh, the, his friends who are uh, advocating for a position specifically in the society in general, that they're becoming almost as bad as the people who they advocated against a generation ago. Silencing people who disagree with them and beating on them and making sure that they don't actually have any acceptance, getting them fired from their jobs and making sure that they don't have acceptance anywhere. And they feel they're justified because they're angry and because evil has been done to them. We all do this, brothers and sisters. And it would be, not, it would be okay if this was just where it stopped. But as we can see in the text here, it doesn't stop there. Notice that because people feel they are justified in all that they do, they end up oppressing each other. You'll notice in chapter 1, verse 6, Gaza delivers an entire people into exile. We have a word for that, by the way, in the modern world. It's called genocide. But they felt it was acceptable because Gaza had done, because the whole people that they were delivering had done evil things to them. Edom, then in verse, chapter 1, verse 11, simply destroys an entire people they're angry with. But it gets worse. Because we're righteous, because we're justified in doing everything that we think we're, we're that we think is acceptable, or because these people were. Oh, I won't skip. I, I don't know you guys that well, so I don't know if you do it. I know I do. They start to use others as a means for their own enjoyment, even if that enjoyment destroys others. Notice the Ammonites in 113. They specifically work to destroy a people by killing unborn children as they violently attack their pregnant mothers. And why? So that they could expand their borders. Just, just think a little bit on how evil that is. Destroying an entire people group so that you can have slightly larger borders. They killed the unborn so they wouldn't be an impediment to their increased personal wealth. Unfortunately, that's hitting a little close to home, so I'll keep going. You see, what's happening there is they saw people as objects in the way of their happiness. 
instead of actually seeing other people as brothers and sisters, as people created the image of God, full image bearers of God, they saw them as impediments to their wealth. And because they were self-righteous, because they recognized, oh, well, I'm a good person and I wouldn't do bad stuff, they thought it was okay. And Amos points out that it's not. This isn't the limit. These all work together even worse. Look at the sin of Judah. Now, remember who Judah is. Uh, just a bit of history. Judah is the southern kingdom. It's the, it's the smaller part of the just divided kingdom. The kingdom divided after Jo uh, Solomon died, uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam took the thrones in either Israel or, uh, or in Judah. Judah is the slightly more religiously astute version. They have the temple. Uh, if you follow Chronicles and First and Second Kings, you'll see that's, that the south tended to be a little bit more righteous than the north. And of course, they tended to lord that over their northern neighbors, which is why their northern neighbors in Israel kind of disliked them. And so it would be fine, you know, it, it, Amos points out then that these people are problematic too because what did they do? Look at cha chapter 2, verse 4, second half. They have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. Now, we don't know why they did this, but given the ways that the people acted in 2 Kings and Chronicles, it's likely they found the statutes of the Lord too onerous and so left them, pretended they weren't there, nuanced the ones that were a little harder or that weren't acceptable to the society around them, kept preaching enough to stay religious, kept preaching enough to deal with the things that, you know, they, they, they keep giving the red meat to the people, talking about all the sins that they didn't have real problems following, but avoided the laws that, did have, that they did have problems following. You know, you shall have no other gods before me, things like that. And of course, the religious leaders didn't want to step down as they left their religion. They simply nuanced the religion enough so that they could stay in power while not actually preaching the truth. And there's a simple reason for that too, isn't there? It'd be nice if we could say that Judah's religious leaders were doing this because they were just bad people and it wasn't the people's fault, but let's face it, we know how this works even today. We choose churches based on what they tell us. There's a reason that, honestly, you're going to be hard-pressed to find many churches who are going through the minor prophets. Because you remember that feeling I told you at the beginning that I had? And, and, and it was a real feeling. I'm not joking. This isn't for hyperbole. I really did feel like I didn't want to preach this text. but it's so easy to not preach it. It's so easy to ignore it. It's so easy to just leave aside all of the big parts of what Amos says and just, you know, say, I know Amos because I know Amos is that one where it says two people can only walk if they agree together, right? Yeah, that's, that, that's Amos. And boil it down to a single verse completely out of context. 
because I don't want to deal with this. And that's what's happening here with Judah. They have been silenced. And by this point, like I said, Israel's believing, wow, this is great. You're, you're, you're shafting all those horrible people out there who do all the wrong stuff. This is great, Amos. Awesome, Amos. And then Amos does, pulls the, pulls the trigger on them. Because he goes through point by point and says, you remember these things you saw in these other people? You're guilty of all of them. They're self, the people of Israel are self-righteous. They believe that the benefits that have been brought to them are because they're righteous. And yet God points out to them, look, I defeated your enemies. I brought you out of Egypt. Look at chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars and who was strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit, his fruit above and the roots beneath. And it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not so, O people of Israel? It's one of these interesting things about being a Christian. I know that I'm saved by grace through faith alone. I know intellectually that the only thing that recommends me before the throne of a holy God is Jesus Christ, but I find it so easy to be self-righteous with people. Mostly people who disagree with me. So easy. And that, that allows me to do things, and it allowed the people of Israel to do things. Notice what Israel did. Like their neighbors Gaza, Edom, and Moab, they used the benefits given them by God to oppress their own people. Verses uh, two, 6 and 7a. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the poor into the dust and turn aside the way of the afflicted. They've been blessed beyond measure and in the face of their blessing beyond measure, they put down the people around them. Sounds a little bit like a story Jesus told, didn't it? You remember the story. Uh, there's a, there's a, a guy who has this insane amount of wealth that he owes his master. And his master forgives him the whole amount. And then after being forgiven this massive, insane amount of money, he just goes out and beats up the guy who owes him a little bit and throws him in jail. So easy for us to do this. It was so easy for the people of Israel to do this. But it gets worse. They treat people as a means to their own enjoyment without a care at all for women, children, the poor, or the foreigner. It doesn't matter. They're all people to be used for their own benefit. Look at this, chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. By the way, that means they're actually treating uh, members of the opposite gender as objects for their own pleasure. 
it's unlikely that that was something that was consensual. That's something that you do to just get your pleasure. They're using women just for pleasure. And they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So basically, they are getting rich off of oppressing other people, and they're using them for their own wealth and riches. And they imagined that they were righteous while doing it. And then they silenced criticism. God calls the prophets and the Nazarites. He gives them them, but you tell them to not preach. By the way, you'll see, uh, you're, if you remember the last sermon, that's exactly what happens to Amos himself. He's called as a prophet, and in chapter 7, the people of Israel are going to tell him through one of their high priests to stop preaching and go home. So instead of actually dealing with the criticism that happens, they silence it. And here gets to the point of why I really, really reacted poorly to this text. I imagine I'm righteous and others aren't. I really do. I find, I, I'm a pastor. I know my Bible. I've decided not to be a good, uh, not to make tons of money doing certain other things. I'm doing other things to preach the word of God, hopefully, so that people will be benefited. And so then I imagine that anybody who makes it harder for me needs to simply do stuff for my benefit. I can be so self-righteous. It's even... It, I even do read it like the Bible like this. I imagine this is the problem with having to slow down and read a text of scripture and actually listen to it. I would like to be able to just pass right over Amos 1 and 2. But I had to preach a sermon on it, so I have to actually read it closely and think about it and reflect on it. And so I can't pretend that Israel isn't me. We oppress others. I do it all the time. I honestly believe I have a right to good treatment by other people. And good treatment is whatever I want at that time. It's amazing how mad I can get because somebody is taking a little bit too long in the drive-thru. Have you ever noticed that? It's like, I can take as much time as I want. But the guy in front of me, if he takes 30 seconds to order anything, I'm angry. And I'm going, and, and, and if I'm having a particularly bad day, I can actually try to talk to the manager and tell them off for not getting to me quickly enough. <laughs> and I think I'm justified. And I'd like to say that I'm alone. But you and I, nobody can hide anymore. You've all got Twitter. You've all got Facebook. I know what it looks like. From 
baristas to masks to politics to all sorts of other things, we honestly imagine that the people who disagree with us are evil and we are completely justified, even as we do the same evil things we accuse them of doing. And it doesn't matter. Like between Edom and Tyre and Moab, it doesn't matter if everybody's wrong. It's still evil that we do. We see others as objects. How often do we simply pretend that the men and women and children and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters we see outside in the world around us are mere objects for our benefit? How often do we stare at computer screens Imagining that the person on the other end is, bene- is being beneficial to us while we're using them just to make ourselves a little bit hap- or more aroused for 40 seconds or so. How often have we actually looked at people as an impediment? How often do we look at people in our families as impediments? If only they were a little bit better. If only they simply did things a little bit nicer in the way that I want. It would be, everything would be perfect and they need to do it. Because in the end, I don't care about them. I just want them to do what I want. The times that we look at the needy on the street... And we either give them money because we don't want to talk to them, we don't want to deal with them, we really don't want to actually, but we want to have that little slight twinge of good feeling because we did something good. Instead of actually, you know, sitting down and talking to them and asking them what the heck is going on and is there any way I can really help you? Praying for them. Or on the other end, just simply calling them parasites on the system and imagining that I'm righteous when I simply turn and walk away. We see others as objects so easily. And right now, how do we deal with the people who disagree with us? Do we listen respectfully, lovingly, kindly, cautiously? I hope you do. I really hope you do. Because I know I don't. I often find it easier to throw a label on them and retreat back into my echo chamber because I know the people who are going to agree with me. And so I can sit and listen and talk with them and not have to deal with this other opinion that may disagree with me or may actually cause me trouble. I mean, (laughs) I was even willing to try and silence Amos. (sighs) And why is it so rare that churches preach difficult passages of scripture? Is it just because you know, the pastors are bad? Or is it because we get really angry at people who preach difficult parts of Scripture? That wasn't very uplifting, we'll say. That wasn't very powerful, we'll say. That wasn't something that we wanted to hear, we'll say. And why am I so disturbed as I read through Amos? 
why, why do I want to close the Bible? Why is it when I think deeply about what the text of Scripture says, why do I just not want to hear it? The answer is simple. Just like Israel and Judah and Moab and Edom and Tyre, I stand guilty before God. In a real sense, I'm hearing for three transgressions of Steve Daw and for four, I will not revoke punishment. <laughs> and if I'm honest, the accusations fit. I really am a sinner. I know it's not politically correct to say it, but I am a wretched, wicked man. I am an unjust, and I am fully deserving of God's wrath for my evil. I can't trust in my own righteousness as, as I read these texts, because as I read these texts, they tell me I don't have any righteousness to rely on. Who is going to deliver me from this body of death? Remember, at the beginning, I said that Amos is very like another book of the Bible, a book in the New Testament. Do you, do you remember what book that was? Romans. That question I just asked, who will deliver me from that, this body of death? Paul asks that same question in a slightly different context, admittedly, but then he answers it. Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the number one bad thing we can take from a text like Amos 1 and 2 is that we are horrible, horrible sinners and we just need to do better. We just need to turn away from the evil things we do and, and, and just do better stuff. I'd love to be able to say that we can do that, but I've tried it. You can't. It's not that easy. Because true repentance, biblical repentance, the kind of repentance that we need isn't merely turning away from evil. It's turning to God. And brothers and sisters, do I have good news for you today? You don't need to rely on your own righteousness. Were you convicted by any of the things that, the, that Amos says here that I pointed out to you today? There was a time when that, that ledger of evil stood against us. That did happen. But brothers and sisters, there came a day when the Lord, seeing our, our wretched estate, decided in his holiness, in his goodness, and in his mercy to not merely punish the evil, but also to make a way for us to be saved, to be reconciled with God. You see, I do really actually want us to despair today. 
I want us to despair of the, the self-righteousness we have, of the many times we imagine that we're good and holy people before a righteous God. Because I want us to turn to Jesus and live. Trusting not in our righteousness, but in his. Trusting not in our ability to follow the law of God, but the fact that he has already followed the law of God. Not turning merely to our own abilities and, and facets. Not merely listening to the uh, ways of our hearts and our emotions and the world around us, but listening to him and help letting him change us into what he wants us to be. You see, this is the thing when it comes to the truth of Scripture. Scripture is there so that we don't have to believe the lies anymore. We can believe the truth. And yes, the truth is harder. Yes, it's going to cause us stresses and difficulties. But brothers and sisters, the Scripture also reveals to us that we were saved. While we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us so that we might be reconciled to him. God, seeing our wretched estate, gave us a son, so that whosoever would believe in him might not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16, by the way. Let's pray. Lord God, I am moved to know that ultimately I don't have righteousness but that you do. Lord God, help me to not silence the people and the things that you have around me that you've put there to help me to know your truth, to follow you, to seek after you. Oh Lord God, may I see you as more valuable than all of the things of my own false, piteous self-righteousness. Lord God, may my brothers and sisters here see you as who you are. Righteous and holy, yes, but also loving and kind and merciful. In the midst of our evil and, and judgment, you saved us. Oh Lord God, you are holy and worthy of all praise. By God's grace, may we praise you now. In Jesus' name.